Probably the best school radio station in the world. This is Bry Radio, proudly sponsored by the BPA. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another instalment of the OB podcast series. Today, t- this this evening, actually, we're lucky enough to have Henry Lowe, um, and pretty relatable to me, actually, an old Dorset boy. Um, sadly, we didn't quite overlap, but a fellow Dorset boy, nonetheless, is in the studio here with us this evening. Say hi to us, Henry. Hello, everybody. Great, cool. Good to have you on. Uh, we're starting this week a little bit earlier, 4.30, um, so tune in. And um, and yeah, Henry, let's kick us off. So talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about your, your time at Bryanston. I think it's probably a good starting point. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I left Bryanston in 2018, so you would have been at, what, D? Uh, oh, I'm not even... I think I joined the September of 2018. Right, so, so when maybe I, not even a little bit. When, when, you're right, so when I left... You were going into yes, into six, exactly. Right. Okay, yeah, so we just cool. missed each other. Just, very just, close. just. I know. Close. Yeah, um, I, I started. I came from Bryanston actually from Charterhouse, sort of another public school. So it was quite a different um, experience here. And I, I actually came here. I suppose to give good context to actually, I think a lot of my sort of pathway um, from. I really hated Charterhouse's system, sort of rigor of it. I had some few horror stories actually from that. But um, yeah, so I came here looking for something a bit different, something a little bit more. Uh, individual and uh, that's what I found yeah so did you join you must have joined did you join in D as well so were you here for the full five years no not quite I so I came in in C actually so I went straight into Dorset okay um, I actually wrote, I, remember, I just saw uh, uh, Mr Vincent and I remember sitting down in the Jeffreys room and talking to him about my experiences and who I was so you know like like Hogwarts you know I get placed mm. in a house so it was <laughs> the sorting hat yeah, yeah exactly. definitely the sorting hat that is Mr Vince mm. oh right so is Mr Vincent the one who kind of directed you to Dorset I believe so yeah I think so yeah I think I think that was the case mm. so talk to me do you think Dorset was the right ha- I, I guess well yeah. we wouldn't have any experience in any, any, sure. in any other house but was Dorset do you think suited you quite nicely good friend group yeah sure I think we had a we had a good time in Dorset I mean we were, we were quite an eclectic group for sure um, and I think we've all, we all made good friends there, and we met, we all had quite different interests as well. It was a good balance, and I think it gave gave me good exposure, like very different kinds of people, and that's something that served me incredibly well, you know, as time has gone on. So yeah, I think it was a good house for me. I enjoyed it there, and I think that um, I like the fact that I managed to not only meet people in my year group at Dorset, but I mixed a lot with people from other year groups as well there, and I met a lot of people from other year groups. That's one of the benefits I think of. I don't know whether every house does this. But we had this thing, and you probably still do it now. We were sort of doing registers and stuff, which at the time felt like a bit of a, bit of a pain. But in hindsight, actually, I, I think it was really nice. Yeah, I met so many people that I sort of get connection requests on LinkedIn, being like, "Oh, we were in Dorset House." Oh, today. I remember you. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I can confirm we still do the register. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sitting there at the sofa for each break time, you know, kind of waiting for people to filter in, just kind of filling it in a little bit. So I can relate. <laughs> um, and kind of among your kind of, as you said, eclectic. Uh, friend group um, mm. and a house uh, year group um, is there any kind of like individual or couple of individuals who really stood out to be kind of your best friends kind of going through school did that yeah, change a little we, bit I think that like so when I started at Bryanston the, the year group changed quite a lot so when I first came in the sort of big characters in the house were like you know Victor who left Zanti who's who lived in I believe in the Caribbean Oh wow, which is a very bright thing. Yeah, it is. You wouldn't find it anywhere else. No, and and he so they left, and they were sort of I think sort of we were relatively close going through. I was quite good friends with Harry Mortimer, who still lives fairly close by. Um, and I I occasionally message on Instagram, although he is notoriously poor at texting back. So Harry, if you're listening to this, answer my text messages. (laughs) Um, yeah, and Ed Ed Oliver, who I've not seen in a while actually, but we were we were quite close at, at Bryanston. So yeah. Wow, yeah, definitely quite a few people there. That's quite nice. And uh, and you still keep in contact with most of these people to this date? I have to say, I'm not good at, the, at keeping oh, in contact join the club. with people. Right. I, I am like, and I'm notoriously bad at this. In fact, one of the um, OPs I was put in contact with some time ago, oh, Dorian Prostochmi, who actually was, uh, he really helped me find my direction, I think, as I as I sort of gone through uni and stuff. That was back when, oh, so what, it must be just before I left Bryanton, the, the summer before, summer I was entering A2, and um, uh, where was I going with this? I've completely forgotten. 
Remind me of the initial question. Yeah, so, I mean, do you still kind of keep in contact with yeah, so, uh, some of these individuals? So he, he would he would knock me on the head for, for this because he is very big on networking and he, he did try and instill a real spirit for networking in me, but I think he may have failed because uh, I, I still struggle to, to, to keep in touch with people, <laughs> but, but yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. And um, that's interesting. So... Um, I mean, it's nice, kind of, I think, definitely your friend group. Obviously, it changes as you go through school. And, um, no, it's nice to kind of have some of those connections. And LinkedIn, as you say, is, you know, kind of a great method too. So, um, And do you have kind of like a, a teacher, a kind of a figure, a role model that you kind of looked up to going through Bryanson that really kind of helped you find that sense of direction that you were just talking about? Sure. I think, like, role model, I'd say, is a strong word. I, I think maybe as an individual, I'm not a very easy, easy part. I don't easily find role models. But I think what I will say is, is that going through Bryanson, as you mentioned about finding direction, there are a few sort of key people that did help me. And I, uh, Mr. Ralphs, who I, I just saw recently, I think he, he played a significant part. I mean, now I work in government, right? And rules are a huge part of government. I was terrible with the rules when I was here. But when I was at Bryanston, I would just pretty much, and, and Mr. Beals can, testament, can testify to this, do what I want. If I didn't want to do it, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you can imagine, I found myself in Friday nights in EMDs quite a lot. EMDs, yes. Oh, yeah. wow, yeah, wow, that's, that rings an old bell. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, he was quite useful in that he sort of broke down the rules for me. He was like, this is why it has to be the way it is. And it was that communication about this is actually why rules are important and why you've got to, uh, that the, these systems have to be in place that have sort of enabled me, I think, to do such a rules-based job today. Yeah. Yeah, no, that really, that kind of gives us, yeah, gives us a good I've idea. I've also, importantly, got to give a shout out to Miss Bentink, who's no longer here. I, I know, sad news, I know, really, really sad news. I was news. gutted to hear this, but um, yeah, I think that she she definitely listened to a lot of my gripes and very diplomatically and constructively channeled them in the right direction. How else was, uh, I mean, you mentioned Miss Bentink, how else yeah. was she kind of pretty impactful on you kind of going yeah. through school? I mean, like, to be fair, uh, the, she taught me English, right? So my undergraduate subject was English. Okay. And I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that she played an enormous role in me following in following that 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 path. I mean, anybody that's been taught by Miss Bentink knows that uh, she is had, sort of has a, sort of, it's a good thing, but it's sort of quite laid back in her approach. And uh, it works incredibly well. I mean, her students do incredibly well. I did very well, despite doing not anything like as much work as I should have done. Um, but... Uh, yeah, that really, she really helped to inspire me to go on to do English. And even when I got to university, I remember I actually texted her my first ever essay. And I said to her, Miss Bentink, I need, I need help. I need help with this. It turned out I actually wasn't following the remit of the instructions in the end. So I couldn't use the help she gave me. So if you hear this now, please forgive me. But uh, yeah, she was really helpful. So that was great. Yeah, right. Totally. And um, where, like, I guess, when did you kind of find, you said about kind of studying English mm. um, at university. Was there like a specific moment in school that kind of that clicked in your mind thinking, right, I now know what I want to do? Or was it kind of, you know, did it take a while to figure that out? Yeah, just talk us through. Quite an interesting journey, I think, for me, because I think the first thing I'd add is that my what I want to do, what I'm doing is constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the case for most people. You know, a lot of people until they retire are taking making constant shifts in their career. I mean, that's what brought a lot of teachers at Bryanston here. Right. But um I think I began Bryanston and I was, a, I was a little, a little, I'd say, a bit lost in terms of the future. I, I wasn't very future focused. And Bryanston was actually quite good at that. I mean, that nobody sort of pushed me too hard. I was given the space I needed. When the time came and I wanted to pursue my career, I wanted to start thinking about that. The, the, the people and the facilities were here to enable that. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing I, I was interested in was diplomacy. The absolute first. Um, I didn't end up, you know, in the end, I, I changed my mind about that. Didn't didn't go down down that pathway. I, at the time, that was because now I'm incredibly close to that pathway, and I may end up pursuing it in the end. But then I sort of moved from there to quite nice to be rich, wouldn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, right, the sort of investment banking finance path. I did a lot of day trading when I was at, when I was at school. I really enjoyed that. Um, made a little bit of money off that as well, which is great. It's always a win. Yeah. But I ultimately realised from that, and also from speaking with other with some OBs who I was put in contact with, um, like Mars and like and like Dory, you know, shout out to them. Thank you so much for for all of the help you gave me. Um, I think I started to find that probably wasn't for me, and it did take a while. 
yeah, it, it, I had to get in. I think it was my second year of my undergraduate degree that I was like, I'm going to try the civil service. And I did an internship there. And I, I think I was also very fortunate when I did that internship. I was put into a phenomenally meaningful place. I was put into uh, something called the Single Competent Authority at the Home Office, which sounds very dull. But in reality is the uh, unit that is responsible for identifying and assisting victims of modern slavery. Right. So it's one of those areas of the Home Office. People think Home Office, they think asylum, they think immigration. Mm. This was a very meaningful uh, space that contributed a lot to people that have really struggled. So it was, yeah, it gave me a phenomenal introduction into that space. And it, it, it kind of, it made me ultimately decide, yeah, I want to do something that really makes a difference, which mm -hmm. is... I'm in the civil service now. Yeah, we'll get on to your kind of journey into and through the civil service um, shortly. Um, but um, so you went to, obviously, you talked to us a little bit about kind of post Bryanston going into uni. Um, yeah, what was that kind of transition between school mm. and university like for you? So I think my transition was easier than most people's was. I went to quite an unusual university. So I went to, a, in high school, it may have been a mistake, but I went to a university that was then called New College of the Humanities. And it was set up because um, an Oxford professor who some listening or yourself might be aware of, uh, Anthony Grayling, went off and uh, he's very vocal on the Brexit debate. He's written a book called Grayling's Law. I'm not sure I'd recommend it, but... Uh, <laughs> At least you're honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, he was sort of proposed that education, at, uh, higher education should be much more one-to-one, -one, much more personal. Uh, they were completely flat broke, you know, because this model was not financially viable at all. But we had lecture, we had a, our lectures came from Oxford and Cambridge. And so I was put in very small lectures, about four of us. Wow. Um, and that was doing English as well. So, sorry, so I wasn't doing like Byzantine studies or something. This was a very sort of mainstream subject. And uh, I had one-to-one -one tutorials every week. I had an enormous amount of coaching. So I think it made that transition from A-levels to degrees standard a lot easier. Yeah, Than right, it otherwise right, right. would have been. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, no, super, super, super. And so you were there for how many years? Three, is that yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, no, no year abroad for me, unfortunately. Just, no. just the three. Just no the sandwich, three. no placement, yeah, no, no kind of all, no. all kind of local, which is cool. So, and I mean, kind of compared to school, like your experiences, mm. you know, kind of socially, um, kind of outside of the classroom, what kind of were your hobbies to kind of do around university? Sure. Uh, this is a good, this is sort of one of the reasons I think there were perhaps some regrets about, around going to NCH. I mean, one of the benefits of, of, of the university I went to was it was incredibly small. Okay. Uh, I, I think maybe that wasn't one of the benefits, but it was a characteristic that had some benefits. Namely, mm -hmm. everyone knew each other. Yes. It was a very close-knit community. Sometimes there was drama, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there were arguments. But really... Big I, family almost. It, exactly. I think that's a fair way to describe it. Some people were more alienated from the family than others. But, you know, it was event. It was ultimately, you know, a very close space. Me, most of us got on very well. And, uh yeah... Yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Um, so that's cool. And, and then, again, kind of at university, I know you kind of have your links oh, hang to... Oh, well, before I go on, I realise you asked me about extracurricular activities. I've got a terrible memory. No, of course, no, me too. Out here now. <laughs> um, <laughs> two of us. Uh, the, yeah, I did, the problem with that, the challenge that came with that, is that there wasn't huge opportunities for extracurriculars. I did do a lot of debating at uni, actually, which stood me in good stead for a, for a sort of circle chat I did with some Bryant Stodians just now who were throwing some pretty pretty tough questions at me. But uh, I, was managed, I managed to bat them off. Yes. So it worked out for the best. Oh, no, good for you. No, that's good <laughs> to hear. And in terms of um, the civil service, did, that, yeah. did you kind of have, was there that work experience available really through university? Did you kind of um, mm. foster a bit of a love for it, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that I am a very big believer that your career journey starts the second you step into uni. Okay. And I think a lot of, I think one of the big problems that a lot of big universities face is that the structures aren't in place to potentially tell you that. One of the reasons that I think LSC, which is where I did my master's, does so well, and Oxford and, and, Oxford and Cambridge do so well, is that the people that are there on the appropriate courses, say if you do law at Cambridge, they're all applying to spring weeks mm -hmm. the second they get into uni. Um, and that was something I fortunately did, largely because I'd been so keen prior to that stage. And it kind of got me moving on the career paths very early. So yeah, that, that journey, that experience began with learning a lot about employers, which is a really important part of the application process. Thinking about banks in my first year, which helped me to realise this isn't for me. Right. So then when I went into my second year, I was like, I want to go and try out the civil service, which is where I did my internship with them on the non-slavery stuff I just mentioned. 
got it. And that and the, that banks that that year that you had with with kind of the bank. Um, talk to me why that kind of wasn't for you. What did, what did you go through that you didn't I, particularly like or? I didn't actually I didn't actually go into a bank in the end. Okay. I didn't, even, I didn't even do it in the end. I started some of the applications and I just started to realize it wasn't for me. Really? I, I okay. even I even had a uh, I had an email from Miles who had who'd, uh, who I'd gone off and I'd sent an email to him and I said, "Could you help me with my application?" And I finished it and I started to appreciate. Yeah, not sure I want to do this. Mm. Which is a bit tough when you've been thinking about that for a few years. You know, it, was, it took it took a long time. But yeah. I think one of the things that a lot of sort of younger people looking at those spaces think is obviously the money is the first thing people think about. Yeah. And uh, what they don't tell you about, which Miles did tell me about, is you're working such long hours. Like you're earning the minimum wage for several years, and you're working weekends. You have no time off. It's absolutely brutal. And I, I just reflecting on that and thinking about my life at uni, I think anyone who's at school still maybe listening to this, it's like school is, um, it takes up all your time. Like it, it, particularly boarding school, it's mm. so structured. Mm. And uni isn't like that. And I really value like my free time, really do. Mm. And uh, once I got that freedom and that free time at uni, I didn't, I didn't want to give it up. And I, I think I, I only appreciated that in my first year. Yeah. So how do you think kind of boarding school kind of made you realise that in a way? Do you reckon it helped in a way? Like university boarding school, do you reckon that kind of helped you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that boarding school in some ways, yes. Because I think there was a sort of sharp, I'm thinking of this big, sort of sharp contrast between the two. Mm. I, I think that in hindsight, in some ways, I'd struggle a bit with boarding school with some of the structure, with some of the way that everything was scheduled for you. But on the flip side, my GCSEs, I really didn't do any work. So if it hadn't been for the structure, God knows whether I would have made it or not. So, you know, <laughs> swings and roundabouts, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I know, I mean, I had kind of have a little bit of, uh, about you, Henry. And oh, no. I think, I, I'm, I'm, well, again, I'm not really too kind of quizzed up on what all this stuff means. So you're going to have to tell me a little bit about okay. what the Northern Ireland Protocol Secretariat is. Right. Funny? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, someone's yeah. Someone for doing some LinkedIn searching or something. So, um, so yeah, we've got our we've got our sources. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first finished my undergraduate degree, I was sort of in a space where I was like, not sure what I want to do. Um, I might want to do a master's. Masters are very expensive politically, particularly ones I was interested in, at the institutions I was interested in. So I went and I worked for the Department for Business doing trade negotiation, essentially. And one of the roles I had doing that was I was, I was the Northern Ireland Protocol Secretariat. So to sort of break that down, the Northern Ireland Protocol is a sort of part of the EU sort of trade agreement we have, and the exit agreement, more accurately. Right. And as part of the agreement for that exit, there were specific conditions attached to Northern Ireland. And one of the great challenges we have is that politically there's a huge push to leave um, Europe completely but in order to maintain the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement which was set up um, in order to stop the violence in Northern Ireland, the separatist violence in order to leave uh, the United Kingdom we agreed that there would be no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland this has posed a huge problem mm -hmm. now because you've got on the one side all the Brexiteers saying we voted Brexit they're still part of the, the, the European Union, that isn't right Northern Irish people saying uh, Northern Ireland didn't vote for Brexit as a whole. So you've got people in Northern Ireland saying, well, this is another reason that actually we should separate from the United Kingdom. You have the European Union saying, well, you can't have a, you, you can't have the rule. You can, we're not doing a soft border. We need to be able to maintain checks to make sure that everything coming through is properly regulated. We can't have um, in a pro, you know, price dumping, which is where you put huge amounts of goods on a market to, to pull down the prices for uh, producers in that space like if i produced a thousand apples on the cheap it would pull down the prices of apples in the eu which would uh damage you know eu farmers so they, they wouldn't accept that uh, so essentially to put it in short the, the northern ireland protocol is all about how can we navigate a political quagmire created by lots of different individuals with lots of different interests all of which i think had pretty strong arguments so is there like a solution to something like this or is it like a compromise? I mean, what, what does it really kind of consist of? Is it still in, in development? Or? I mean, so the protocols in place at the moment, it's been in place since we left the EU. Okay. It has been, um, both sides are always looking at ways, it, are still looking at ways it can be improved. The, the challenge is, is that really, 
the number of solutions for it without being in the common market are quite limited. Okay. So, I mean, I'm, hopefully we'll come up with a creative solution to it. But as it stands, it's still in place. It's still a tricky area. The government is still doing a lot of work on both in the UK and in the EU. Okay, so and what does your what what did your role involve with this kind of huge scheme? Sure. So at the time, we were essentially uh, ref- we were looking at the Northern Ireland Protocol, exactly what it was, so understanding its full nature, looking into um, potential ways we could work with the EU to make it more functional for everybody involved. Is is the short way, and so my role was essentially to sort of make sure that in logistical terms that the that everyone was brought together from lots of different tables with lots of different specialties to deliver to try and make this protocol work essentially because at the moment it's not working as well as a lot of people would like so it was it's sort of project management and at the same time it was a bit of um sort of logistical stuff admin stuff it was it was a combination of the two it gave me a really interesting sort of overarching insight into how the EU exit process has worked. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, th- these are all kind of terms that I'm going to be honest, I'm not, again, not really too... Yeah, and if I, I, one, of the, one, of the, one of the vices of all civil servants is that we really struggle to not use acronyms and sometimes to keep things simple. So if I say anything, you're like, well, what does that mean? Just, just say it, I will explain it. They're never, you can never ask, what is that, too many times. So I'm quite used to it. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, that must come with, you know, all the all the kind of goods that you deal with. It's, that must be so tricky. Um, so, again, so you, how long were you kind of in this role for? Is this something you, that's continuous? Are you still doing it now? No, or? No, no. So I was in this role for a short time, about under six months. So I got into this role. Um, I'll be quite open about this. I was doing this job, and it, the, the team I was in wasn't fantastically structured at the time there were some fantastic people there and i actually made some really good friends working there but it wasn't working for me and i got a scholarship um for a master's program i wanted to do at the lse so it was a bit of a no-brainer for me i was like you know i don't i try not to make a habit out of staying in roles for that short an amount of time but i left to pursue a master's Okay, so is this something that you, in the first place, was it something that you kind of saw as a bit of work experience or kind of like, did you see it as, right, this is kind of something I can see myself doing really long term or? I think I went into it with a bit of an open mind. I mean, I definitely, like, don't get me wrong, I went into it thinking, I'm not going to do this for more than a year. I did think it might be the, my my foot into the civil service. One of the sort of annoying complications, I don't, this probably isn't very interesting, so I'll pass through it quickly, but is that the graduate scheme, I think it's important. The graduate scheme I'm on is the pipeline for, for future leaders. And the, this pipeline is quite poorly paid. If you've been in the civil service and you've passed your probation, which takes two months, pr- when you enter that scheme, your pay is much better. It reflects that of the of, the, of other civil servants who have bargained un- agreements with you know bigger unions right with much better pay so my to be honest one of my major incentives was if i do this i'll get some good experience and at the end of it i can apply and for uh the three years i'm on that scheme i'll be earning like five or six thousand pounds more a year i mean i'll I'll be i'll be honest that's (laughs) considerable yeah yeah totally completely understandable there so again you left kind of again i think you decided you wanted to pursue a master's so um why did you like at that moment instinctively Mm. think that I mean, that's probably the better solution for you at that time. That's a good question. I think that for me, and I think there are, I personally, I believe there are only two reasons you should do a master's. One is passion. The other reason is vocational advantage, right? So either do it because you love it or do it because it'll take your career further. Yeah, of course. Because they are very expensive. Um, I did it because largely because I was passionate, partly because I thought it might take my career somewhere I wanted to go. I think in hindsight, it, it, has turned out to be more of a passion. I don't think it's necessarily a career space I want to go into, but time will tell, you know? Human rights has a place in... Cause sorry, yeah, my master's was in human rights and politics. Okay. So yeah, human rights is a, a place in almost all government work. I mean, it's a fundamental part of what government has to think about, quite rightly, because it sets the limitations of what we should and can do. Um, so it will always prove useful to me, but I think it was more a passion project than anything else. I mean, human rights is such a... It, it's, it's a fascinating topic. Again, something I, I'm not too, you know... I don't really know too much about. So, I mean, what was your kind of biggest takeaway from a kind of year in this, mm. I mean, hugely fascinating field? 
So this is quite an interesting time to talk about human rights. So I, the human rights degree I did was a critical human rights degree. So that's to say that it was premised mostly in theory and not in practice. So human rights in practice is a sort of human rights charter at the UN. So that would be the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It would be the outcomes of Nuremberg, which happened after the atrocities of uh, the Holocaust. The, the, that's kind of law. That's how things are today. My master's was more about how can we make that environment better? How can we rewrite re, re, re trying to say, human rights charter for the 21st century? Right. And the, one of the core backgrounds to this was that in recent years we've seen huge regressions in, in human rights you know the on both sides of the political spectrum on the on the sort of left wing side of the political spectrum there's been a lot of accusations of uh kind of cultural colonialism which i have sort of quite strong views about but um which i, I really don't think that that's a very good critique of human rights but it's become an increasingly common one um on the on the right there's increasingly you know movements towards authoritarianism you can point the finger at spaces like you know individuals like uh, Donald Trump, mm. um, people like the uh, Bolsonaro, people like um, uh, you know other populist leaders, Marine Le Pen. You know different people around the world that are uh, pop, uh, you know, growing populist movements. You could even make the argument that Brexit is is one of them. Uh, although, uh, yeah, right. So is this quite like an opinion based? Um kind of degree is it something that you're allowed to express so say say if you feel quite strongly about an area of human mm. rights um i won't name any but would you is that something you can express in your master or did you have to kind of keep keep quite balanced in your approach sorry i know that's quite a tough kind of no, question no, no, not, not at all not at all i think that the, the 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 crux of a master's and i think this is why i really enjoyed it is that you can say pretty much anything you want as long as you've got the evidence for it. Mm. if you okay. can find the evidence you can present the evidence um, it's yours for the taking, and I mean a lot of what I wrote about uh, definitely wasn't along the same lines as some of my my lecturers. You know, um, I think the sort of cult, the cultural coloniality of of human rights has become a received idea, right? Like, sort of you know moral relativism. I suppose it's quite relevant to Qatar at the moment in the World Cup. Yes, you know, it like should is it actually wrong for us to tell Qatar that they must give, uh, you know, treat gay people equally? To heterosexual people um and you know th a lot of the critiques of human rights would say uh, no that's their culture and we should leave it alone um and one of my big beliefs going into that and one of the things i sort of theoretically justified during that process was um no actually you know we can say no to that we can enforce human rights and it is the right thing to do the other thing that was a sort of big interest of mine was to do with children's rights but from a sort of more unique perspective a lot of the time Children's rights is talked about in terms of protection. So that's largely in the global south. It's about, you know, um, child exploitation, whether that be, you know, sexual or manual labor or whatever it is. Mine was about mainly, mainly Western focused and was about child empowerment and about what the, my thesis ultimately became about what has the current state of society done to children and parents? Because, you know, these two ideas I, I say ideas because really childhood and parents more an idea than anything else i'm getting a bit bit into a bit of academic ease here but you know, i'll try i'll st try and stay clear of it as much as i can and um you know how has that impacted the welfare of our children today um and how has that what can we do better what should how can we reflect on the way we treat children and what rights should they have right so i mean only if you can talk just a little bit i mean mm -hmm. more if you can about children's rights i mean is this it, it, again, I assume it's quite. Um, they vet like children's rights and human rights in general vary from kind of culture to culture. Mm. So, I mean, kind of, is it possible to maybe compare a little bit about like from kind of a culture to a different culture? I mean, w what's your experience? Yeah, sure. So, I think that the core. I'll push back a little bit. Okay. To get into a characterization. I think the part I'd push back on is um, the concept of a right, because the concept of human rights, which is you know the the, the parent of. of children's rights is liberalism political liberalism which is ultimately a western export this idea that the individual is sacrosanct that you're sort of which comes from religion right this idea that you have a spirit and that it was you know that you are endowed by god as an individual this idea that sprung out of the french enlightenment or the enlightenment in france during the french revolution that said everybody's equal and uh there's no that god did not ordain a societal order and then we essentially went around the world largely in the sort of post-war period 
um, during Cold War preaching to other countries. You should follow these pretenses of liberalism. One tenet of liberalism is capitalism. And at the time, the argument was, and this is the sort of cultural colonialism argument, is we did that for our own economic advantage rather than out of goodwill. And that uh, the better thing for us to do is just stop interfering in other countries around the world and their, their forms of morality. And I think that the, the sort of economic aspect of it is quite interesting for what you mentioned, right? Because a lot of this argument, if you look at cultures around the world that frame children's rights in a different way, a lot of that turns into something economic, you know? Now, it's sort of almost to answer your question. One of the case studies I like to look at for this is if you look in Latin America, you, the sort of children's rights law that's enforced by the United Nations is not really fit for purpose. So a lot of that revolves around, for example, children staying in school. But actually, if you come from an impoverished family in Latin America, you're struggling to make ends meet. It is much better for your welfare, for your future welfare, for you to go out, get a job at 14 so that you can feed yourself than to starve in education. Um, and this is something that probably doesn't get discussed enough and it's probably one of the more valid critiques. Mm, understandably. Of, of, yeah. Of, of You've got to kind of do what's optimal for your family in a way. And mm. I guess if it's if in that culture, if it's right to, to do so, to kind of work and go out at 14, despite how it might be frowned upon somewhere else, it, it's, it doesn't kind of take away from the fact that it kind of is the right thing to do. I, I don't know if you agree if that's true or... No, completely. And I think the challenge that all government has and... The reason we have local government in, in the UK and the, the reason we have devolved nations is that governments in general are quite blunt instruments. The United Nations is a very blunt instrument. It does a lot of good, but sometimes it misses the mark. And that's you know what these master's programs are for. That's what you know, academia is for, largely, is to sort of point at that and NGOs and say, that's not right. That should be done differently. And I'm a big believer you know, that, that, you know, um, that history goes towards justice. And... In time, most of these things do get addressed, but it is it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Um, yeah, it's almost a time game in a way, isn't it? I feel like sometimes it takes a long a long time for these kind of things that should be correct to kind of become correct through history. If that makes sense, a hundred percent. So again, so kind of just reminding me. So going back to your masters, what uh, kind of taking away, um, like you know. What was the kind of best thing you took away? I'm not quite mm. sure. I, I can't really remember. <laughs> you might have answered the question. No, I, I, I don't think I have. I think that I. My master's, trying to articulate it is a little difficult. I think that one of the things that was really crucial about it for me is that it touched on so many very contemporary issues, from Black Lives Matter to the rise of authoritarian populism, you know, to all kinds of sort of key, the key political issues of our time. And it gave me a really good understanding of all of them. It allowed me to, and I think this is really important in today's world, sort of empathise with other people's perspectives. Mm-hmm with um, alternatives the way that are, and see alternatives the way that our sort of international system works at the moment. I have thought about in the future going to diplomacy. It's one of the options, I think, when I, when I finish the scheme. I'm on the, the graduate scheme I'm on. Um, yeah, so it's a very, it's very broad strokes, but it's essentially to say that I understand the political world so much better than before I started that master's, and the most important stuff. I think it's easy to forget that human rights is not just law. Human rights is the language people use mm-hmm. when they want to change something. It's very unusual that you will find your rights language not used. I mean, even look at like Brexit, you know, or like, take Trump being taken off Twitter. Right? He, has a seri- he, has a, he takes issue with that. What's he use? He uses the language of freedom of speech, the language of rights. And the language of rights is constantly used to, uh, to, make, ser- to make serious political points. So the, the study of human rights is far more wide-reaching than just say genocide or or you know specific or the Holocaust, you know it's much bigger than that. Yeah, so that's um, quite a shallow kind of view of human rights. Yeah, isn't it? just kind of saying genocide or you know something as big as the Holocaust. Yeah, and it is a really good lesson I think for 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 people in general, and it's something I've been talking a bit today to Bryant Stonians about is um, the media is the nature of the media and the nature of the way our brains work means that we really do reach towards things that are very apparent and available to us mm. what's on the front page what people happen to be talking about but there are a lot of other things going on in the world i mean one of my sort of subcategory passions within the human rights space is, is genocide and whenever people talk about genocide people talk about the holocaust yes but there's so much more than that no that's just a classic example isn't it exactly but again there are so many more i agree totally yeah. so um yeah i think again just another thing i've kind of got here henry mm. um so a post 
but post-Brexit trade deals, was your only experience um, in kind of working in like post-Brexit mm. trade deals in the kind of Northern Ireland um, protocol secretariat or have you kind of done quite a lot of post-Brexit work since moving out and moving out of your masters? Have you done much in that kind of region? So I say the, pro- the sort of post-Brexit work is, is in every aspect of government at the moment. Okay. So for those that aren't already aware, the... Uh, one of the big priorities for the current government is to try and get as much EU legislation off the books as they possibly can, or pre- all of it, by the end of 2023. Okay. Um, whether that's practical or not, who knows? You know, there, there are differing opinions on that, and I'm not going to give mine. But, um, so, uh, when I first came to my job at the moment, I came in when Liz Truss was in office, or had just come into office. So it was just after the Queen's funeral. Um, and I was given a role that was largely about reviewing our relationship with the Civil Aviation Authority, the government's relationship with the Civil Aviation Authority, which is the regulator for, for flight. Essentially, all things planes, right? If you want to fly, you've got to have a license from the Civil Aviation Authority. Everything that goes on to related to flying is, is regulated by them. And they're governed largely by law, um, or at least they're governed at least in some part by law that is that was created under the in, in the European Union. So part of that job was going to be to go, uh, what can we improve here? What should be changed? Um, but once Liz Truss went out of office and Rishi Sunak came into office, again, you know, the, the what's known as the portfolio, so the priorities of ministers changes. This meant that the space that was in changed a bit and it moved what my personal portfolio was, which <laughs> moved over to being something more along the lines of skills okay and uh yeah it was more it was it was i started to have a broader role i think part of that broader role has meant interacting with the international space to some extent because a lot of the challenges we face require international cooperation but probably less less brexit relevant than otherwise so how much kind of international um involvement do you have post um you know kind of that transition period between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak as the British Prime Minister so my current role a lot of that revolves around supporting our like our team's international work the nature of international work is such that unless you are a very senior civil servant so we're talking director general which is one step down from the most important civil servant in a in any government department you won't ever go anywhere or speak to any other delegates. It's, it's just too important to give to, really? to give to more junior people. Yeah. But what I do is a lot of preparation for that. So getting those individuals ready, making sure we have asks, making sure that we understand what other people are offering so that we can go out and we can be a world leader when it comes to these issues. One of the things that is perhaps a little a little scary, but also something I, I think that, that a lot of people don't know about, is that Britain's a world leader for... Um, is a world leader for the sort of improving the gender diversity of aviation. It's aiming particularly for pilots. It's an incredibly male-dominated space. Like 95% of pilots are men. Wow. Obscene, isn't it? Yeah. It isn't. Yeah, it is yeah, obscene. Yeah. And that's a big part of what we're doing. South Africa is number one in the world, and we're in number two. And we're, we're actually the case study that's given at the International Organization for Aviation, the International Civil Aviation Organization, use us in their... Uh, their papers as a an example of what to do right so um, a role model in a way it, for this, the aviation industry exactly that exactly that so yeah a lot of my work and, and, and the international stuff we do is about trying to build upon that and become a role model in much more aspects of aviation that of course allows the british government to set the pace to uh to put idea to test ideas that are well potentially in, in the british interest so it's a sort of win for Britain and a win for the rest of the world because they get to see how they can do things better, how they can improve their, their aviation spaces. So, yeah. Definitely. And uh, kind of what prompted kind of going into the aviation industry, I guess that's quite, uh, I guess that's a little bit of a change. I know mm. it's kind of similar kind of government work, but from, I mean, remind me of your previous kind of role before. So before, before that, I was sort of like, I was work, yeah, I was a trade and investment, uh, a trade and investment negotiation sort of business manager, um, project manager. Yeah. yeah, so kind of going into the aviation industry, I guess a little bit different. So what kind of what kind of prompted that for you? Oh, it was it was so I went on to the leadership scheme. Okay. So there's something called the civil service fast stream. For those that are sort of perhaps thinking about their career already, they might be thinking about the civil service. This is probably one of the first things you'll come across. 
Um, it's quite competitive, but it gives you the opportunity to see a, a wide range of departments, a wide range of work, which sort of prepares you to become a senior civil servant so that you understand the way government works, the way things get done. So I essentially get placed in things that they go, this looks like a good fit for your development needs. So really the way it works is, is it's the opposite of you've done something that you would be experienced and good at. It's more about what would you, it's about taking what they consider to be adaptable people and going, what would you be bad at? Let's put you in that role that you're bad at and you will become good at it over the course of the year so that you get a much more diverse skill set. So you're much more prepared for lots of different eventualities and things because as, I, as you may be able to tell from the discussion about um, sort of the, the portfolio changing from ministers changing all the time, when the government changes, the stuff we're doing changes. Brexit changed everything. All the time, things are being turned on their head. So that ability to just do something completely different and pick it up quickly is such an important skill in government. And that's essentially what I'm learning at the moment. Um, and I think it's actually something quite valuable. I, I, one of my... Uh, something I heard from a, my, one of my friend's fathers, which is sort of, I think is a really good piece of advice. It was like, any job you go into, that you go into it thinking, oh, I can do this job really, really well, probably isn't the best job to be going into. Like A job that really makes you think and work hard and develop and you feel a little uncomfortable. Mm, almost that challenge job. zone. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. I yeah. think, yeah, honestly, you can kind of benefit the most from kind of not being in your safe zone in a way, but being in kind of that challenge, almost slightly more yeah, challenging environment. Exactly. Like one, of the, one of the sort of facts that I really like is uh, I found out recently was that actually people with a little bit of imposter syndrome do much better, they perform much better than people without. So sometimes you're going into something, you feel nervous about it, you don't quite feel like you can do it, that might actually be a good sign. And is that, did you find that that was the case for you? Like, oh yeah, like particularly going into this job, like I think that it's difficult to appreciate that when you start these jobs, you're thrown right in. And you're around people that have lots of experience. So you feel like you have to match up to them. And to be fair, there is an expectation that you do. And I think the most important thing, and I something that maybe I didn't do this when I first started, but it's just generally just accept the fact you don't entirely know what you're doing. Don't try and pretend you entirely know what you're doing. Um, I think that I was very keen to come off as much more confident than I was. Um, ask a lot of questions, which I did, and I'm glad I did. So that you can get up to speed and you can become comfortable. But yeah, it really is natural to feel unsure. And, it, and I think it's important to embrace that. Yeah, that sponge mentality. I think teachers kind of have told me, you know, my, my tutor, you know, kind of a lot of people who I'm, you know, very fond of have kind of told me as advice, kind of ad adopt that sponge mentality, really mm. kind of embrace change and kind of soak up, you know, learning really. And um, just, you know, kind of bits and pieces. I think it's a great way to kind of, you know, develop and kind of build as a person. Yeah. Um, so um, just kind of a, quite a big question away, but um, I'm sure uh, keep it quite relatable to Bryson students. What advice would you give um, Bryson students at the moment? So it's kind of current mm. um, teenagers here, here at Bryson, what would you suggest? Oh, that's a, a difficult one. I think that there are sort of two things I'd say, particularly to Bryanston students. The first thing is, is that coming out of a school like Bryanston, you know, you've been in an environment where you won't have seen probably you know, this won't apply to everybody, but a lot of people will have been in quite secure and safe environments their entire life. And one of the disadvantages of that, of course there are many advantages, but one of the disadvantages of that is that you, a lot of the time you don't have that hunger and that sort of level of comfortable fear that students that have come out of more difficult backgrounds um, have mm. and, and made it, that is. So I'd say... You coming, you know, when you're quite young, and I, I don't consider, you know, I definitely fall into this category too. You know, you feel pretty invincible. Mm. Like that's why you do stupid stuff and you uh, put yourself in danger and you run in front of, in, in roads and get hit by cars and all that stuff. But you feel even more invincible when you've been in an environment where you've never seen anybody completely fall on their ass. Yeah, and that is definitely the case at, at a lot of schools, including Bryanston. So the first thing I say is, when you get to uni, look at what the people around you who are really hungry at doing and do what they do because right now you are you know in the most advantage in the but one of, one of the most advantages in the country it doesn't take very long for you not to be so anymore it does, really doesn't take long for you to fall behind uh particularly when you're in uni a lot of the graduate schemes etc they, they come very quickly it's a lot don't treat uni as a holiday work hard on your career 
if after uni, when you're doing, when you actually get into a job, you then want to experiment a bit and maybe relax that a bit, a bit more, and you can do that. You know, you really can. Basically, don't treat uni as a holiday would be, I think, my most in, my most important. Um, it has a huge impact. Like just because you went to private school doesn't mean you've made it. No, a hundred percent. It's 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 so easy to kind of fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, you know, I go to such a nice school, it's kind of going to be easy mm-hmm. for me. It's it's that's again, it's one of the worst traps I think that you could fall into. Yeah. So, would you would you suggest is there any kind of way to foster that hunger, that yeah. tenaciousness, that path, that passion at school? Would you say almost before you get to uni? Um, to kind of almost aid it when you when you do get to uni, if that makes sense. Well, I think that these things help at school as well when you're still here, and like from what we know about the brain, like the most important thing to do is is visualize, think about, look into where do I want to be, and I think the metric I I I use with myself and maybe helpful for others is think about how you imagine yourself when you're forty, fifty years old. What would make you proud, that person, and what would you not be proud of? For most people, their minds will jump towards someone who they are proud of, that they like the idea of being. Try and do the things that take you towards being that person. Mm. Now, did that person mess around during their A-levels? Probably not. Did that person apply and push themselves to apply for the best uni possible? Maybe, and this is something I I think is also a good opportunity to, to push back against a little bit, is did they think about maybe whether they want to do an apprenticeship instead? Are they sure they want to go to uni? You know, um, yeah, I think that think that trying to interrogate where you want to be and visualizing that, and then just starting to think about, okay, who is that person? What's the pathway? Is if this person is an accountant, probably quite unusual, but you know, you know, who knows? Person's an accountant. What have I got to do now to become an accountant? Well, if I want to work at a good firm, probably going to have to get some A's in my A level. That's quite important, and I will emphasize this again. A levels are really important <laughs> once you finish uni. Um, yeah, so like, make sure you've got the right A levels. Make sure you you have an idea once you get to uni. What are the th- once you're starting to get towards uni? That's summer where a lot of people just want to chill. Do enjoy yourself, but think about when I start uni. You know what kind of things might I want to apply for? You don't have to spend hours doing it. It's like it honestly could be like a fifteen minute job, but it just puts you on like so, huge advantage. It, the people I know that were interested in working in finance, particularly in law and consulting, mm-hmm. that in first year knew what they wanted to do. They just googled it before they got to uni and applied for the right insight scheme for a week, and they spent a week there, and now they know them. And now they get invited to apply for an internship. And now they've seen them do an internship, and they know they're good. So now they get invited for a job. And now suddenly you're at, I don't know, McKinsey, which is a well-known it's a management consultancy that is a well-known career accelerator. Then you've got the opportunity to leave in a few years' time and go to Google or go and work at this company you've always dreamed of working at. And I think that yeah, I can't emphasize how important I think it is that you do work hard when, 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 when you're young. I don't think I did as much as I probably should have. Um, luckily, I think I, I, I had to make up for it when I was at uni, to be honest. And there are some regrets there because they did make things a lot harder for me. Um, but yeah, that would be it. Really start to kind of think early. I mean, there's mm. so much you can do at such a young age that really aids and benefits your kind of prospects, your career. Um, so no, that's, that's brilliant advice. And hopefully anyone out there listening, it's something definitely good to take away. So thank you, Henry. And kind of be going through that system, kind of knowing, kind of having the experience, the kind of wealth of knowledge and, you know, um, ideas that you've got. Um, kind of what's coming up next for you, would you say? Would you, wow. What's kind of the big plan? Do you have um, a kind of ideal kind of career in mind um, with this, having done this? Or, you know, what's just talk us through your plan. I think that I've got to a point, I have a few plans, a few ideas. But before I sort of just say what they are, I think that one of the signs of my own development is the fact that I'm less sure of what I want to do. And I think that there's a big dialogue, even from a very young age, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. Or that pushes this idea that you really should know. And I actually think for a lot of people, you know, some people, they genuinely don't know. That's not such a great thing. But I think it can be a really good sign of knowing yourself that you don't know what you want to do. Most people, what they want to do when they are 18 is not the same thing they want to do when they're 30. That's why so many of the teachers here have come from banks and all kinds of places to teach, because they didn't know. So not knowing is not a problem. Um, now, I sort of have a few sort of trajectories I think about. Well, one tra- trajectory is towards national security. Um, that might take me to the international space. It could take me to um, to maybe sort of more def- to defense. It could, they, there are a lot of options there, so I'm sort of keen to explore that. 
The other thing I think is important for anybody working in government is to get a really diverse range of experience. So anything I don't get when I finish this scheme, next step will be try and get that key piece of experience. I think the final thing I'd add on that as well is that I am a strong believer that anyone working in government should have at least some experience in the private sector. So I do want to go away and work in the private sector somewhere. But I say all this, like, and I think people talk about their career plans. Like, yeah, this is what I know I want to do. Like, I say this, but all the time, and my, my partner sitting opposite me, and she can testify to this, like, all the time, I have new ideas in new places, in new sectors. Oh, I like the idea of this. This sounds really cool. I even might get drawn back to academia all the time. Like, I, I wanted to do, like, an addiction studies master's, and then I was looking at financial history, and then I was looking at, you know, it, all, I'm, look, it's good. Uh, it's because I'm interested in lots of things. I'm excited about lots of things. If you're not sure, it's probably because you have a lot of interests. I mean, I'm bigging myself up saying that, but, you know, could be true for you. So I wouldn't get too fast if you're not sure. It's essentially what I'm saying. Um, and, yeah, I think for me, probably government. For it, but I'm, I'm being quite vague on purpose because I'm not entirely sure where yet. So, um, I mean, thank you, Henry, for kind of just filling us in there. And um, I guess almost as a final question, just kind of wrapping up a little bit, mm. uh, would you say government, I mean, as you just said, if, we, if you could kind of pick one of those trajectories that you yeah. were kind of, you know, explaining us through a little bit there, would kind of, it, would you say government right now, I know anything can change really, as you said, yeah, sure. would you say government really yeah, could I, be where you're looking at? I, I'd say it is. I think one of the things I will add, though, is that, and I'm saying this more of a, more of to represent you know, civil servants out there as, and teachers and all public sector workers, like, it's difficult to look at a career in government right now and say, I want to stay in government the rest of my life because at a senior level, it is fantastically paid. So, and I say not fantastically paid, it pays like 10 times less than you could be earning to do an equivalent role in the private sector. So, uh, yeah, I want to stay in government. I want to, I think it's really important to me make a difference in my career. So I think I want at least half of my career to be in government, but I'm open after that to changing. But yes, to answer your question, Yes, government is the future for now. Oh, Henry, thank you so, so much <laughs> for kind of just talking us through your journey, your experiences, your life at Brighton, your life beyond Brighton. It's so, so fascinating to hear. And I think definitely me and probably quite a lot of our other people um, of, our, uh, of our listeners have definitely taken something away. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, everyone, please keep checking our Instagram just so you can keep updated with when we'll next be back. We should be back ideally um, a similar time next week, maybe 4.30 to 5 will be our starting time Um from next week going forwards and have a lovely weekend when it comes thank you so much for listening to henry Lowe and myself and have a wonderful weekend thank you probably the best school radio station in the world this is bright radio proudly sponsored by the bpa